We're into 2 Peter 2 again, and we're picking up where we left off last week in verse 12. Just before we do the reading, uh, chapter 2 of uh, 2 Peter is one of those portions of Scripture that's, that's hard. And we might say it's, it's even dark in its theme because it's dealing with things that are contrary to the things of God. But it's here for us to learn from. And with its blackness that's there, you know how it is that when something is so very dark, then something that is so very glorious then stands out in contrast to it. So there is a glory in this that will stand out as we read through it. I just want to prepare you for the reading. And you wonder, what is going to encourage and inspire us from this text? There is something in here. There's a warning and there is inspiration for us, an application for today. So 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as, they wage, as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Peter is continuing in this second letter of his to churches of God, a general letter to a number of churches of God. Believers gathered together to serve God according to the pattern that we see in scripture. He's writing to warn the churches of God about false prophets or false teachers, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. People who claim to speak on God's behalf or claim they have an understanding of God. He's warning them that there are false people like that in the ranks of churches of God. It's vital, I think, to see that here in chapter 2, that the people he's describing are not 
genuine believers. They're pseudo-Christians, they're fake. And actually the ones that are active in this way, as he describes them in this portion, they know it. And they're engaged in subversive activity in a church of God to destroy that which is precious for God and to God. It seems from the earlier part of chapter 2 and certainly the portion we've read that they're accepted. They're accepted by some in a local church of God setting. They have an audience. Maybe by those who are weak in the faith because they don't see through the facade that they have. And when they're granted an opportunity, they're bringing a destructive influence into the lives of the people <coughs> that they're spending time with. Now, of course, when something affects somebody in the church of God, it affects the whole of the local church of God. And for that reason, Peter is so strong. It's graphic language, isn't it? He's so strong in his, um, his description of them. He was the apostle, remember, whom restored to service lovingly by the Lord was told, you will take care of my sheep and my lambs and you'll feed them. Here he is discharging that duty as a shepherd in writing to the churches because he's heard that there are things happening that should not be happening. And there are people present who should not be part of what is going on in a church of God because of their uh, destructive activity. He is discharging that God-given responsibility directly received from the Lord Jesus himself. And he has justifiable contempt for the people here. Now, he's not alone in this. If you go and read Jude's letter, you will find that the text that we've just read and the section of Jude's letter are very, very similar. We're not sure who wrote what first, but around AD 65 onwards, 30 years after the Lord Jesus has returned to glory and the churches of God have been established for 30 years, a generation, generation in, there is destruction happening as those who are not believers are doing things in churches of God to destroy that which is precious for God. So Peter and Jude speak in similar terms about these people as a warning to the people, because the letters are general letters to be read to all who might gather in church gatherings. And there's a warning there for the ones that are engaged in this about their condition. And a warning too for those who might be sympathetic or weak in their faith and, and not really seeing that this is happening. There's a warning here. Can I say this? Don't be surprised if loving shepherds today who have the responsibility given to them by God made such by the Holy Spirit as Paul describes them in Acts 20 overseers are made such by the Holy Spirit it's a position and a responsibility that God has given to shepherds, to elders if there are at times descriptions or an overflowing of a, can I say a justifiable contempt for things that destroy the lives of people in churches of God you would expect nothing else, would you? If there's something there which is damaging and you love that which is for God's glory and you love the things of God, then you're going to hate that which is against it. But we'll come on to something in a moment that maybe the shepherds in the churches of God to whom Peter was writing weren't fully aware of what was going on. 
What's Peter's overall theme in this second letter he's written? I, looking at it and having read it again through, it seems to be that he's saying in his second letter that God's judgment is coming and it's unstoppable. His judgment against sin. His judgment against sin, and that means against sinners, is inevitable. It's coming. But alongside that is the promise of God that the righteous, the righteous will be saved and rescued from that. The righteous here, right back to verse 1 of chapter 1, he writes to them and says, those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Peter is reinforcing what we have throughout the New Testament that our righteousness before God is not anything we achieve ourselves, but is solely in the Saviour, Jesus Christ. Those people who are righteous because they have exercised that faith in obedience to what God has declared and revealed, they are rescued from God's judgment forever. But God's judgment is coming. That's why this is so relevant for us today. It's an encouragement for us to be reminded that we will be rescued. And although we live in a society where uh, evil is still present, it will be defeated. We will be rescued from it. And we will be rescued from it before God's final judgment comes. And God has yet a plan that he will work out among the nations of the earth. We will be rescued from it. When Peter writes um, back in 1 verse 10, 2 Peter 1 verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I, I want us to see that Peter is driving something very important here, that our righteousness by faith in Christ is something that is evidenced. It's not something we have to keep achieving. Some may understand 1 verse 10, that we have to be diligent to uh, keep our salvation because we could lose it. And that alongside the interpretation of the latter verses here in chapter 2 can lead some to that conclusion. But Peter is not getting at that. He's not saying that we have to earn or maintain our salvation. He is saying that your lives as believers will naturally, as those who are born again, evidence the things that he has listed in chapter 1 prior to that, the qualities. There is so much in the New Testament and the words of the Lord Jesus himself that assure us that once we have exercised saving faith in the Saviour Christ Jesus that God has provided and the Holy Spirit comes to be the guarantee of that which is to come, that that cannot be reversed. That is eternally secure. That's the promise of God. Once we're saved, we're saved forever. What Peter is getting at here is that a genuine believer, contrasting this with those who are pseudo-Christians or fakes, a genuine believer will evidence a desire and an appetite and show it in their lives of the virtues that he's mentioned or the qualities, which are Christ-like qualities, of chapter 1. We have to go back into this to, to understand chapter 2. What were they? Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love. Those are all embodied in the person of Christ. 
We're born again that we might be transformed by the renewing of our mind and conformed to the image of his son. So these qualities will be seen in genuine believers and there will be an appetite that's there in the life of a believer. That is one of the means by which God confirms to us that we are his forever. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and if children we are heirs also. That's a wonderful text. God confirms to us if we are his. And I think if there's a desire, from what Peter is saying here, an appetite and a desire for these Christ-like qualities to be seen increasingly in our lives, again, it's an evidence to us and to others of the genuineness of a spiritual experience that we've had with the Saviour. But what about these pseudo-Christians, as I'm calling them? He says here that there will be some in churches of God having taken a place. Now to have a place in the church of God according to what we understand from the New Testament it's someone who has professed to be born again. They said they have received God's salvation. They have then been baptised by immersion and then they have been added to a local church of God to take their place in service with others. Somebody has gone through that to take their place. Peter is saying here that there are people who have taken their place in churches of God who have not been to the Saviour for salvation. That's frightening. Not only that, from what we read here, some of these fake believers will have a very destructive influence on genuine Christians that they're spending time with in a church of God, particularly those that are weaker in the faith. Notice the language. They're intentionally and deceitfully working their way into people's lives. 2 verse 1, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. This is not something that is done publicly and from the front. It's secretly bringing in destructive heresies. 2 verse 13, they're reveling in their deceptions. They're engaged in situations where they're deceiving. 2 verse 14, they entice unsteady souls. They have an influence on those who are not strong in the things of God and the things of the faith. 2 verse 18, they're enticing by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. These could be new converts, or they could be people who've, David has been encouraging us over previous weeks to be people that are in the word, to be solid in our understanding of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. So people maybe have not done that. They have the desire, but it's not fully blossomed. It's these people that are at risk, it would seem. And it tells us they're motivated by personal gain. Do any of us ever escape that? The things we do are not for a little bit of personal gain, but this is different. And for the satisfaction of their own sinful desires. They're setting out to do that which is against the things of God. And they're clever in it too. The corruption I'm suggesting to you is probably covered with a facade of religious talk. And religious activity. Uh, in environments where they know they're going to be found out by those who would be more mature. That's why I'm thinking that this activity is a secretive thing that's going on in certain little environments, not in a public setting, 
And when it comes to a public setting, there can be people who can turn up and they can say the right thing and they can do the right <coughs> thing. An outward thing. And it's all a facade. Now, this is frightening, but this is in the word of God. The cunningly deceitful. The adversary is the same. Paul's the one who says in 2 Corinthians 11, 14, that he disguises himself as an angel of light. So people will deceive and seek to destroy others. And the adversary is behind it because he wants to destroy that which is precious to the Lord Jesus and to God the Father of all. Peter's description is graphically brutal, isn't it? Uh, they're creatures of instincts, he says. Slaves to sin is really the summary of it. Uh, doing what their nature demands. And that's what a sinner is. A sinner sins. No option but to do that. And they're engaging in their immoral activities in the daytime, reveling in the daytime. Even in the culture back then, you would leave this sort of um, things that are being talked about here, sexual immorality and promiscuity and such like, you would do it at night. And the darkness was associated with that. But here, they're doing it in the daytime environments where this would be happening and they're not even waiting for the night they're insatiable in their sinful desires and it goes as far as to say they view the others of the opposite sex as potential sexual partners to satisfy their sexual desires that's the sense of the word it says full of adultery the sense of the Greek there is they look at everybody as a potential partner Terrific. But what's really concerning is that there are some in the church who seem to welcome these ones to feast with them. Now we can't be sure. Jude uses similar language here to Peter. And uh, the term love feasts appears in Jude. And it may, in some of your translations in Peter, refer to, make reference to love feasts. Some think that could be the remembrance itself one of the glorious high privileges of the people of God to gather, to be by spirit in the presence of God, to remember him by keeping the Lord's feast, remembering him through the bread and through the wine, the cup. Doing that, they could have been present there. But in this culture, and history would tell us that quite often after uh, they would have gathered as a church for that, then they would have gone off to share meals together. And they, that love feasts um, does apply to that as well, the times of fellowship that they would have, rejoicing in the things that they've already uh, been together as a church in. It could be speaking about that. You're welcome. And they come into that setting and they're given an audience and it's there that they start to do their work. How is it possible that false prophets false teachers and I think when we look at the word false teachers there because prophets was associated with old covenant times there were people who claimed that they had some understanding of God and they would pass it on and God was so hard through Jeremiah and Ezekiel in particular on the false prophets of the people who stood up and said everything's going to be all right when the real prophets were saying judgment is coming in today's dispensation where we are now there were New Testament prophets for a generation, I believe, um, along with the apostles, before we have the full revelation of the word of God. So the term teachers then is people who, again, would say that they have an understanding of God. It doesn't necessarily mean those that are recognized by
by the church as teachers to stand up publicly and teach. But they're people who would claim, like false prophets, to have something from God. But it's false. How is it possible for false prophets, if I can stick with that term, to gain such trust and exert, and exert such an influence in a church of God? Look at verse 17. These, that's still referring to the same people, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. And look at verse 19 as well. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Here are people who can make statements as if maybe they have all the answers and they have an understanding of God that others don't in the private setting, which may be difficult for overseers to know it's happening. We need to guard against that. What we get into in terms of discussion about the things of God and what we allow to be said. It's just a little warning, I think, from this. But notice that these people are they which make promises or statements that on the surface sound really good to our human nature. They're making promises. Um, but yet, Peter is going at it and saying what they're teaching, what they're promising, what they're claiming to know has no substance to it. And they cannot deliver. And their thinkings and their philosophies even cannot deliver the fullness of what God wants his people to enjoy and understand. Instead, the things that they say bring a freedom only bring pain and destruction and a slavery because they're slaves themselves. And whatever overpowers a person to that, that person is a slave. They're promising false freedoms based on false promises. Isn't that so much of what the world system pumps at us all the time. Waterless springs in an arid country like Israel in certain areas, they would come to a spring and they would expect the spring to be gushing with water. They come to it and a waterless spring is nothing but a big disappointment and actually a threat to life because somebody could have travelled to it to find there's nothing there. It's one metaphor that's used to describe them. Secondly, mists driven by a storm. A mist that could rise would be the promise uh, to the farmer. Remember, we're, we're talking a very agrarian culture here. Would have been the promise that there's, there's moisture coming, there's rain coming. But instead, a forceful wind just comes and whips it through and there's nothing. Nothing. There's promise, but nothing. Waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. And he says it clearly, doesn't he, Peter, in verse 19? They promise freedom when they themselves aren't free. You know, that's the wonderful, glorious message of the gospel. Those who are genuine believers who know the Lord Jesus Christ have been set free. And we don't say the freedom is in ourselves. We say the freedom is in God and it's in Christ Jesus. Only in Christ do we find and experience true freedom. The Lord Jesus himself said this, John, verse, John chapter 8, verses 34 and 36. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The Lord knew. The slave does not remain in the house forever and will be banished. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's why Christ had come, that he might be the one to set us free from our sin and its effects and consequences. Only in Christ do we come to experience 
the well of water springing up to eternal life. I'm using the words of the Lord here. That's what he said to the woman at the well. John 14. The water that I will give to the person who believes will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There's promise and delivery. It's not a waterless spring. Only in Christ can we have this eternal life. This freedom that is a promise fulfilled because it's in God himself who came for us. Only in Christ do we experience as well the daily refreshing of life-giving forgiveness for sin that we continue to commit and blessing to see God's hand in everything that we do. The Lord said in John 7 verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I believe that's a daily experience of knowing through the word of God and time with Christ himself by the spirit of Christ within us helping us to understand the things of God we have this satisfaction we have this blessing it comes to us this is freedom this is delivering on a promise God delivers on his promises all the time and every time we have that repeatedly through scripture you know as unbelievers as slaves to sin we had no option but to sin that's what Jesus was effectively saying. We, we could not do anything but sin. Slaves to sin. Do what that which had overpowered them do. Sinners sin. But the freedom that Christ has come to give to those who believe in him is yes, the freedom before God in terms of the guilt from our sin, but also this, and I've, I've loved this over recent months, is the freedom to choose not to sin. You get it? As unbelievers, those who are rejecting the things of God, we have no option but to sin. But as believers, we're brought into a freedom that by the Spirit of God within us, as he would work with our conscience and with our understanding of what delights the heart of God, we are brought into the freedom where we can choose not to sin. That's an amazing freedom. What about today? Is it possible for what we've read here in terms of people being in a church of God engaged in destructive things, is that possible today? Yes, it is. Let's not bury our heads and think it's not. But it's frightening, isn't it? As I said before, the activity that we see here in chapter 2 is not something I think that's up front and obvious if I can use the term underground it's there and it's happening there are some who could intentionally criticise critique they might say give a different perspective um, that doesn't actually come from scripture but sounds attractive to those who are weak in the faith because of a self-importance that they feel they may have an understanding which everybody else has missed. That's possible. And to those who would give them an audience, it's destructive because it could encourage others to move away from the word of God and to go after the things that people would say in the world all around us. Upsetting the faith of some. It'll bring ruin. And if it is happening in private settings, then 
as I've said before, elders and overseers, those who would care for the flock of God, have a hard job to know if it's happening. But maybe we can sense it in the lives and the service and the activity and the joyfulness of the people who form a local church of God. It's difficult though, isn't it? What a difficult task to point a finger and say, this is happening. That's why the letter was written to everybody in the church. Everybody needed to hear it. I'm going to extend the application a little bit here about this devious work um, that goes on that can destroy the faith of some about things that we would let in. Notice that it tells us that these people were welcomed into private settings, to the love feasts, that's to the table. In that society, that was the place where family um, happened. It's where you had your relations with people and that was, that was a precious place, invited to, to sit at the table. They're there. What about today? I am carefully extending this. Maybe some eyes are going to roll, and maybe some that will listen to this, their eyes will be rolling as we get to this as well. But think about it. The world system is set against the things of God. With Facebook, with Twitter, with Instagram, with YouTube, with TV series, with movies, with novels, I could go on, newspapers, the whole lot that's coming out of a world system that is against the things of God. Do we give it a place in our personal settings that is too prominent so that it undermines the very things that God wants us to be solid in? Now, that's a caution for those who would maybe acknowledge that they're weaker in the faith, but also for those that may be stronger because it's not too much to see how these things can change our thinking, to see the world's views on some things can be very attractive and can take us away of the purity of devotion to Christ, as Paul says about it. Satan knows what gets us going. And today we have phones. Now, I've seen this in the Philippines in five years of visiting there. No phones to smartphones in five years. What an impact it's having on the lives of young people in the Philippines. You can see it. That's why I have a conviction that I'm speaking truth, some truth here. You see it. Satan knows what gets us going. John writes, the desires of the flesh, things to do with immorality. The desires of the eyes, the things that we, we look at that we shouldn't be looking at. Voyeurism. And the pride of life. He's really getting that materialism there. Are those things not bombarding us through these channels? And we have them in our pockets, on our screens, beside our beds. And we're letting it in. We need to be very careful what it is that we choose to look at and take in from these channels. I'm not saying we don't touch them, but we need to be very, very discerning about what it is we look at. Now, this matter of the falling away doctrine, as some would call it, the latter section of uh, 2 Peter 2, I need to deal with that. <clears throat> Let's be careful with the text here. It's not saying in this section here, verse 20, um, that they've had a knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. They, 
again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. That's not speaking of people who, have, who are believers who have then lost their salvation. It's not for these reasons. That verse, uh, verse 20, says they have escaped the defilements of the world. Peter's, by the Spirit's help, is intentional here. Defilements speak of an external thing. It's possible, as the Lord said to the, the Jewish leadership, your whitewashed tombs externally can look righteous, but internally dead. That's possible. That's what the text says. Defilements are an external thing. He's not dealing with an internal change. Secondly, he speaks using terms that do not sit with the rest of how Peter describes people who are genuinely born again. He doesn't use the terms born again or faith. He speaks about people who have a knowledge of the Lord. But scripture tells us that a mere knowledge does not bring salvation. A genuine spiritual experience of God that moves from head knowledge to consume that which moves us Entirely our heart, as the scripture refers to, is what is necessary for salvation. So I'm convinced that this does not speak of people who were once saved and are no longer. Of course, Peter did say in 1 verse 10 that um, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. I think he's speaking about Christians and services. There's a possibility that we don't pursue the things of God and we can stumble in our service, but we don't lose our salvation. He's not dealing with that here. He's dealing with people who were not saved, but they've known the way of salvation. They've known the way of righteousness and they have purposely rejected it whilst having a facade that they have received it. This is what really frightens me about some in churches of God, possibly. I should remove that word possibly at the end. This is what frightens me about some in churches of God. And maybe this applies to those who've grown up in churches of God. Descendants of those who've gone before. It's possible they've grown up thinking they're saved when they're not. That frightens me. And there have been occasions recently where it's kept me awake at night. It's a possibility that people have the knowledge of the way of righteousness. They know who the Lord and Savior is, but it's an external thing and it's never touched their internals. They've known the way of righteousness and after knowing have turned back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What's that? I believe this helps me with John 3.36, John's commentary at the end of John 3.36. For some, it's been a, a trouble verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There's a matter of belief. But then he goes on to say, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And the wrath of God remains on him. What's that obedience there? It's not continuing to obey the things of God that you might guarantee your salvation. It's obedience to the very command that we be saved. That's the holy commandment that I believe that Peter's referencing here. They've turned away from it. Don't want anything to do with it. God intervened with Balaam. A man who is used to describe these sorts of people. He knew. He knew the way. He knew something of the Lord. But he purposely rejected him. And he suffered God's judgment. We read about that in Numbers. But I want to finish on this, which is delightful. The reminder that our righteousness is in Christ. 
And when we receive him as our saviour, then that internal work of God is done for his glory. And I believe Peter in chapter 2 has used three Old Testament characters to tell us about what it is he delights in. Notice he, he mentions Noah earlier in the chapter. Then he mentions Lot and then he mentions Balaam. Noah is a herald of righteousness is how Peter describes him. Genesis 6 verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And God rescued him from the judgment that was coming. He was rescued. What about Lot? Lot's described as a righteous man too here. You actually get more of an insight to who Lot is in 2 Peter 2. And whose soul was tormented with the wickedness of Sodom. Here's a man who compromised his righteousness by living in a place where he should not have been. But he was a righteous man. And you know, that compromise ruined his family. His wife died. His daughters committed, instigated and committed incest with them after they'd been rescued from the judgment of Sodom. Where did they get that from? It's from the environment in which they'd lived. His choices had compromised not just himself, but his family. But he was saved. Here's Peter's point. Those who are genuinely righteous before God. And in our day, it's those who realize that Christ the Savior has been given to be the righteousness that we require to stand before God. We will be rescued when the judgment of God and before the judgment of God comes. What about Balaam? No way. There's a man where it never touched inside and he suffered the judgment of God. Back in Ezekiel 14 and verse 14, the Lord God in speaking to the people of Israel who were in captivity mentions three people again. Not again, he mentions three people. Noah, Daniel and Job. And he says of them that if they were to stand their righteousness would not save this people. He was holding up three people, God was, for their righteousness. Not them, but their trust in God. Noah. God delighted in Noah's righteousness and he rescued him from the flood of his judgment. What about Job? God delighted in Job's righteousness and rescued him, brought him through the suffering that God permitted to come into his life. Why? Job trusted in his God. Why was Noah saved? Because he trusted in God. The third man was Daniel. There's a man who was a contemporary with Ezekiel, who trusted in the promises of God and was given such insight into the future that he trusted God. And what did God do for him? He rescued him from the, from the den. When people's trust is in God and in the Savior that he has provided, we are rescued from that which the world thinks would harm us. Not only that, we're saved from the judgment of God. God delighted in Christ's righteousness, but he didn't rescue him. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God has done a work in Christ, the righteous one where he did not rescue him out of the experience of Calvary, where he endured the wrath of God because that was the means by which then we could stand as righteous before him in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful God we have. And knowing that this is so very precious, then we guard against what Peter is getting at here. 
The way of righteousness is there before us. To live and to enjoy for God's glory. And to encourage everybody else to do the same. That's our task, is it not? Whatever circumstances will come, for those, God will rescue. He's promised it. He delivers on his promises. For those who reject it, the gloom of utter darkness awaits. Earlier, Peter refers to angels who rejected God being put in gloomy darkness. He speaks of those who reject the things of God and reject the Saviour, the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and the way of righteousness. For them, utter darkness awaits. I should spur us into action to speak of the one who is the light of the world. Let's pray.